Good morning, church. It's good to worship with you this morning. Um, if, you, if you don't know who I am, we may have some visitors here this morning. My name's Evan Wilson. I'm the worship pastor here. Um, Richie is uh, so talented, so gifted. Uh, worship team, thank you all for leading us. Uh, usually that's my role. Uh, our, our lead pastor is not here this morning, so you get me. You're welcome. Um, now, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We've been in a series for several weeks, several months, actually. We took a little break at Christmas. Uh, sermon series called Come and See. Uh, we're journeying through the Gospel of John together. Uh, it's going to be a long time in the Gospel of John, uh, and we're going to enjoy every minute. John chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, look in the pew in front of you. Those of you kind of closer to the front might, might not have this option, but uh, for most of you, you can see there's a brand new black Bible in that pew back right in front of you. You're welcome to use that. Also, if you don't have a Bible of your own, if you don't have a Bible that you can call your own, then, that, then now you do. That one is our gift to you. We want you to take that home with you so that you can spend meaningful time in the Word with God every single day. Um, hopefully, everybody is uh, at John, John chapter 8. We're going to read, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 together today. 1 through 11. Obviously, John chapter 8 is a continuation of the story from John 7, so it's a little odd seeing the first verse can, uh, beginning with a conjunction, but that's where we're going to start. John 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone uh, with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Father, would you bless the reading of your word today? Would you uh, guide us to the truth this morning, Lord? Whatever it is that you want to communicate through this encounter, Father, I pray that, that you would do so through me. Nothing more, nothing less, just your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do we have any uh, students in the room, any kind of students, current students, high school students, college students? None. Liars. Oh, we got some back there. Um, we've got some current students and we've got some past students as well. So hopefully everybody in the room will understand uh, what I'm talking about. So imagine you're taking a test. Those are the best, right? You're taking a test and you come to a multiple choice question. <clears throat> This is how I approach multiple choice questions, especially if I don't know the answer. Option A, I take a look, I read it, and I'm like, hmm, it's not that one. So what do you do? Eh, not that one, right? Go to option B. Is that, is that the right answer? Mm-mm. What do we do? Mark it out. Obviously, all of us know what I'm describing here, the process of 
Elimination. Cheaters. <laughs> Process of elimination. Uh, forgive me for mansplaining this, but I'm trying to make a point. This is the process of eliminating what we know to be false so that all we have left is the truth. Well, in John chapter 8, Jesus in a roundabout way goes through his own process of elimination. And what I hope we all can see this morning is when we eliminate falsehood from our lives, when we eliminate worldliness, when we eliminate sin, all we have left is the truth of the gospel. And with that truth comes freedom and peace and joy and all those things that our soul desperately longs for, desperately craves, we find in Christ alone. So let's go through this process of elimination this morning. So we're going to start with three separate perspectives, three separate perspectives. We're going to narrow things down to two supposed possibilities, and then we'll end up, once Jesus flips the script, which will be fun, uh, we'll be left with just one secure promise. All right, get it? Three, two, one, kind of narrowing down the options there. All right, uh, before we dive into the text, let's address the elephant in the room. Um, some of your Bibles will probably have parentheses around this text, maybe even multiple parentheses. Some of your Bibles may have a footnote that says something like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. What in the world does that mean? Um, here's what this means. <clears throat> Don't panic, all right? We're not going to panic. Everybody in agreement? We're not going to panic. All evidence leads us to believe that this story is not present in the original book that John the Apostle wrote. Um, the most compelling evidence for that is um, it is not present in the oldest and the most complete manuscripts that we have of the Bible. There are manuscripts that do include this, uh, this section of John, which is one of the reasons we have it today. Um, there's, there's several reasons possible reasons why this wasn't in the oldest and most complete manuscripts that we have. It's a very interesting story, and it highlights the ugliness and the messiness of just church. Church is, church is rough sometimes. Our church history is ugly uh, at times. I'd love to go through that story with you, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Um, although, let's talk about it sometime. Somebody catch me, and we'll talk about the history of this passage. But even though this is not in the earliest and most complete manuscripts, we have absolutely no reason to doubt that this was a um, actual historical event that took place in the life and ministry of Jesus in Judea. Uh, in fact, we have every reason to believe that it did take place. First, this story was a part of the same uh, pool, if you will, of oral traditions that um, the, the Jesus stories that we have in the other gospels were in. So the, the stories of Jesus that were passed down through storytelling, uh, generation after generation, this story, along with all the other stories of the Gospels, were all included in there, okay, along the same lines. So that's one reason. Second, numerous church fathers make mention of this story in an authoritative way. Um, the couple being Augustine, uh, Eusebius, and Papias, who some claim knew the Apostle John personally. So, you know, there's, there's some good evidence there. Third, nothing about this story goes against what we already know and what we come to know about Jesus, how he acts, how he teaches, um, how he opposes the Pharisees. Um, this story does not contradict anything else we know about Jesus. And lastly, this may, be, uh, this may seem a little bit too simple for some of you in the room, and um, I'm okay with that. 
Um, but if you believe, like I do, that God protects and preserves his word uh, despite our human flaws, um, then the fact that we're looking at this text today on this page um, proves that God wants to show us something through this encounter. Does that make sense? Um, so laying all those arguments to rest, I want, you to, I want us to move forward with the confidence that this is something that happened in the life of Jesus Despite the, the manuscript messiness, this is something that happened in the life of Jesus, and it's something that can be instructive for our lives today. Everybody together? So first, let's look back at verse 1. I want to read it, I want to read it again. Uh, we're going to start with the three separate perspectives. Um, <clears throat> verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. They crowded around him, and they sat down, and, uh, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Uh, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So, let's look at the three separate perspectives at play here today. First, we see the perspective of the scribes and the Pharisees with their unyielding judgment. Scribes and the Pharisees with their unyielding judgment. So, th their perspective is rooted in the desire to maintain religious purity and social order, which, mind you, those are not evil things. They wanted to maintain religious purity and social order. That's, I, that, I, I would say that's probably some of my goals too. Um, however, what we come to realize throughout the Gospels is that these scribes and Pharisees, they were quick to cast judgment on others, yet not so quick to cast that same judgment on themselves. Also, what we come to realize in this story is that underneath this facade of religious piety, we learn that there's another motive that they have, the motive to test and entrap Jesus in a way that would lead to his indictment and then ultimately to his death. So this isn't just happenstance. This isn't just something that Jesus just kind of, you know, fumbled up to um, and just like, hey, how you doing? Uh, this is part of a scheme to silence Jesus. Um, in, the, in the mind of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus was a rebel and a troublemaker, and so they want to silence him. Um, so they bring before him a woman who they say has been caught in the act of adultery. And there's just one problem with this statement, several problems, but at least one problem with this statement. Um, if the woman, if this woman was in fact caught in the act of adultery, then why is she the only one standing there condemned? Um, you guys tracking with me? Takes two to tango, right? Um, where's, where's this other person? Why are they not being accused alongside this woman? Deuteronomy 22 says this, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Uh, then Deuteronomy continues, If there is a betrothed young woman and a, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, uh, she was in the city and the man because he violated his neighbor's wife. Um, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So regardless 
of whether this woman was married, betrothed, engaged, whatever you want to call it, um, there should have been two people standing guilty before Jesus. This is why N.T. Wright, uh, when he talks about this story, he doesn't call it the story of the woman caught in adultery. He calls it the story of the men caught in hypocrisy, which I think is probably appropriate, probably more appropriate for this story. So these Pharisees, they're so blinded uh, by their hatred for Jesus, blinded by their determination to have things their own way, that they fail to see their own hypocrisy. Sadly, this is the perspective of the Pharisees. Next, we have the perspective of the woman who, according to the testimony of the Pharisees, uh, is undeniably guilty, undeniably guilty. By all accounts, she was caught. So they say she may have been framed uh, and she was definitely not the only one that was guilty, but uh, the truth remains, she was undeniably guilty. Uh, Gary Bruce, uh, a commentator, helps us to understand uh, this woman's perspective. He says, this woman does not have a minor problem. She does not have a minor problem. Her life is in jeopardy. She has broken the law and according to that law, it is fully appropriate for her to die. And what I hope that each of us understands today is that we are all in this position. We all have this perspective or should have this perspective. We are all undeniably guilty before a holy God. Each of us stands guilty before a holy and righteous judge, just as this woman does in John chapter 8, which leads us, thankfully, to the third perspective, which is Jesus, intent on showing unmerited mercy. Even though at this point in the story, in this, in this, at this point in the book of John, he, he hasn't done so fully yet. Um, he, does, he does show the woman mercy. Um, but we know, we know the ultimate um, display of God's mercy is still to come. Jesus, this is his perspective, all right? Jesus, God the Son, he is aware of every single thing that's happening, everything that's going on, everything that's led up to this point, everything that's still to happen. Um, he knows all of it. He knows the guilt and the shame that is just uh, weighing on this woman who's being publicly humiliated. Um, and he knows what's in the hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees, how they intend to uh, entrap him and uh, arrest him and hopefully put him to death. Um, and so Jesus, he knows all of this that's going on, which, which is what makes his response so interesting. Um, so we've seen the three uh, perspectives. Let's narrow it down to the two possibilities, because uh, supposed possibilities, because the Pharisees only saw two ways this could play out, right? They're like, he's either going to do this or he's going to do this. And if he does this or if he does this, either way, it's going to turn out negative for Jesus. Um, one option that the Pharisees uh, saw that Jesus had, and I guess he did have this option. Uh, one option Jesus had was to condemn the woman for her sin. Uh, to say, yeah, she is guilty. Do to her as the law commands. Um, and had he done this, which mind you, he was perfectly within his right to do. He is Jesus. He's the holy and righteous judge. Um, but had he done this, those following him would have said, hold up, Jesus, what, what happened to mercy and forgiveness? All those things you've been preaching up until this point. What happened to that? What happened to uh, whoever believes in him shall not perish? Apparently this woman 
That didn't include her. There would have been a lot of confusion. And the Pharisees would have been thrilled to gain some credibility. If Jesus says, yeah, the Pharisees are right. Well, then that gives the Pharisees some credibility, right? Um, Also, the Pharisees would have been thrilled for Jesus to lose some followers too. So um, not to mention, adultery was not a capital offense uh, under Roman law. So I guarantee they would have tried to use that in some way against Jesus as well. But um, even though that would have uh, possibly turned out negatively for Jesus um, in their minds, that's not at all what they expected Jesus to do. They didn't expect her to condemn her. They knew, they knew, um, they knew how he was. Uh, what they expected Jesus to do was concede. They expected Jesus to pardon her. They expected Jesus to let her go free. Um, In their view, Jesus was in the habit of ignoring the law and even contradicting the law. We see that whenever Jesus heals people on the Sabbath, how they're just appalled that he would break the law in such a way. And so, you know, Jesus, he's got a track record in their mind of of, um, ignoring and contradicting the law. So they fully expected him to just let her go um, scotch-free. But I love what Jesus does here. In normal Jesus fashion, he just flips the script entirely in a way that's completely unexpected. Look with me in verse 6. They said this to test him, uh, that, they might, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So uh, Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So there's a, there's a small detail in, in there that almost seems unnecessary. It says he bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. Um, I don't know if this is giving anyone in the room uh, flashbacks, but this is not the first time that God wrote with his finger. Remember back to the book of Exodus when God gave to Moses the two tablets with his Ten Commandments. Exodus 31 verse 18 says, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Did you catch that? God wrote the law with his finger. Um, has anyone, surely most people in the room are familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. I don't, I don't think I've read that book entirely, but I have seen the movie. Anybody seen the movie, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Um, so there's a scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that, that is, is John 8 to a T. Um, for those of you who don't know anything about this story, let me try to bring you up to speed a little bit. So in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, There's an ancient prophecy, fictional prophecy, that foretells that four humans, two sons of Adam, two daughters of Eve, are going to overthrow the white witch who is ruling over Narnia at the time. Um, The white witch, fearing this prophecy, um, once once these two daughters of Adam, or two sons of Adam, two daughters of Eve come into Narnia, she takes, uh, she takes the opportunity to um, convince Edmund, one of the kids, to betray his siblings and betray Aslan, who is the true uh, king of Narnia. So is everybody tracking with me so far? That was prob- I probably butchered that big time, but 
anyway, we'll keep going. Edmund's betrayal. Edmund is, is the son who, or is the sibling who betrays his siblings. So Edmund's betrayal uh, makes him a traitor, and by Narnian law, um, makes him, um, he, he should be put to death. Traitors are put to death. Um, so this, this, is, uh, this is my favorite scene in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The white witch, she brings Edmund, undeniably guilty, right, before Aslan, and, um, and says, you have a traitor in your, midst, in your midst, Aslan. And Aslan responds in a calm and confident, confident voice, his offense is not against you, which I love. Um, the witch comes back. She says, have you forgotten the laws on which Narnia was built? And Aslan roars back, don't quote the deep magic to me, woman. I was there when it was written. That sounded just like Liam Neeson, didn't it? <laughs> don't, don't cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. This is exactly what is happening in John 8, and I hope you see it. Jesus is riding on the ground with his finger, okay? Riding in the ground with his finger. The same finger, essentially, that he used to write the law. The law that the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to trap him in. Um, and I just, I just see this action as Jesus saying, don't quote the law to me. I wrote it. I wrote the law. Now, there's tons of speculation, I have to say. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of ideas about what Jesus wrote on the ground. Most people agree that it had to be something that made the Pharisees and the scribes aware of their own sin. Otherwise, why are they just kind of leaving, you know? Um, but the truth is, we, we don't know. We don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground uh, because we aren't told here in John chapter 8. But I think it is absolutely beautiful to think about Jesus uh, in this moment, he's having flashbacks to Mount Sinai. He's thinking about giving the law to Moses for the first time. Um, all those years in the wilderness, all those years of adultery um, that Israel uh, committed against him, and thinking ahead to what he is about to do on the cross, how he's about to take on all the punishment for all that sin and rebellion, even the sin and rebellion in this moment. Um, and can you imagine he's standing there looking around, seeing these people, um, everyone there undeniably guilty, pointing fingers at each other, um, yet his response is still unmerited mercy and steadfast love and faithfulness. So Jesus did not intend to condemn her. He does not intend to make any concession either. Instead, he makes one secure promise. Look with me in verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. <clears throat> if we can go back to Narnia for just a second, um, after this scene, immediately following this scene, when Aslan says, don't cite the deep magic to me, which, um, uh, Aslan and the White Witch, they enter the tent, and they can, you can tell there's some negoci negotiations happening, uh, and they come to an agreement. And then they exit the tent, and what we find out is that um, Aslan offers up his own life for, uh, to save Ed Edmund's life. Aslan, he doesn't condemn Edmund, um, and he doesn't pardon him either. He keeps every single letter of the law, 
which demands a life for betrayal. He accepts the punishment that was due Edmund for his sin. And again, that's exactly what Jesus did with this woman. They didn't know it yet. The woman didn't know it yet. The Pharisees didn't know it yet. Um, But Jesus knows that one day in the not too distant future, he is going to die in her place and in the place of every sinner. Um, He's going to take on the punishment for her sin. He's not going to condemn her. He's not going to pardon her. He's going to deal with her sin. Um, And so he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Romans 8 says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Um, I hope you know this morning uh, that Jesus says the same thing to you, to each one of us. Um, And if you know it, I hope that you believe it. I hope that you live in a way uh, that is a reflection of that. See, we're all, we're on the same position of this woman. Just like the woman in the story, we are all caught in the act, um, undeniably guilty. Our sins may differ uh, in nature or in degree, um, but not in essence. We are all sinful. We are all guilty before a holy God, and he does not desire to condemn us. Praise God. He desires and longs for reconciliation, for us to be in relationship with him. Paul tells us in Romans that um, the law was given to reveal our sin. It was given to show us how sinful we are and drive us to come to God, to come to Jesus. Warren Wiersbe says this, nobody was ever saved by keeping the law, but nobody was ever saved by grace who was not first indicted by the law. There must be conviction before there can be conversion. And so just like the woman, you and I stand convicted by the law. And Jesus' response to us is the same. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. This is a call to recognize the mercy that we've been given. I don't know about you, but as I was singing uh, with you earlier this morning, which was, which was a great change of pace, by the way. I love worshiping with my church family. Um, as we were singing, I was just over and over as I was singing these words, just aware of, of my own sin, aware of my own undeniable guilt. And as we become more aware of that sin, um, how we stand guilty before the law and before a holy God, we become more thankful and more, um, we are able to recognize more and more the weight of God's mercy and grace in our life. So this is not Jesus calling us to a life of perfection on our own, but to a life of pursuing righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's about living in the freedom that we can only have in Christ. That freedom is not freedom to sin, right? That freedom is freedom from sin. We get to walk in newness of life, life that glorifies God, serves others, and reflects 
the transformation that comes from encountering Jesus. And and lastly, um, having received unmerited mercy, um, we are called, Jesus calls us to extend that mercy to others, to show mercy to others, whether they deserve it or not. And that's hard, but that's what Jesus did. And so that's what Jesus's disciples do. So um, as we close, maybe, uh, maybe you need to acknowledge your guilt before God this morning. Maybe you just need to take a moment and just remember that you are guilty. Um, and as you do that, maybe you need to accept his free, unmerited mercy. I mean, there's, there's always moments in each of our lives whenever we can get caught up in, in the hustle and bustle and the tasks and the, and the jobs and the responsibilities and we forget that we are, we are guilty before a holy God and he extends mercy and we can walk in that. We can walk in that freedom. Um, maybe you need to commit to walk in that freedom. Maybe you need to be better about extending grace and mercy to others. There's, there's, there's so many ways we can apply this to your life, apply this to our lives. So the gospel has been read. God's word has been read. However you feel the spirit guiding you today, don't waste this time. Take a moment, respond to him. He's spoken to you, I pray. Let's respond to him together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not acting in the way that the Pharisees expected. Thank you for not acting in the way that we might even act towards our own debtors. Thank you for your unmerited mercy. Thank you for being a God who, despite our ceaseless unfaithfulness to you, you still remain faithful. You still remain steadfast in love and commitment. Thank you for being the God of God's beyond what we can fathom. God, as I'm reflecting back on my own life, as I remember those times in my life when I just get so distracted um, by responsibilities, by tasks and duties and um, worldliness, um, selfishness, my, my, my mind just gets so clouded by all of the things happening in, in the world. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for each person in this room that you would help us to eliminate all that stands in the way of a pure relationship with you. God, show us our sin. Show us where, we're, where we may be blind to hypocrisy. Show us where we may be blind to to the different things that just harm our relationship with you and with others. Help us, Lord. We want to know you more. We want to walk in your ways. We want to make disciples. And even though we fail in that so often, God, we pray that you would help us to do that today, every day this week, every day of our lives. Thank you, Father, for your word and for your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.